grace and peace to you from God, our Creator and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When we gather on Good Friday, we know what we're getting ourselves into. We know what lies ahead. We understand what the cross means, and we know what the images and the feelings that it evokes in us are going to be. We're coming here with the expectation that we're going to hear and experience things that cause fear in us, things that are scary, things like betrayal, things like suffering, things like death kinds of stuff that we like to sweep under the rug and ignore that exists in the world around us, especially the world that God has given to us. But I think especially in the midst of these scary moments, it's important that we remind ourselves of the bigger picture. I actually, strangely enough, cannot think of this moment without thinking of Mr. Rogers. Now bear with me for a second. There's this beautiful quote. Mr. Rogers, it says something like this. When I used to see scary things on the news, my mother would pull me aside and say to me, look for the helpers, because there are always helpers. And that's exactly, I think, what I would like to do now, is to take a step back from all of the the scary things that we just heard, those fear-inducing things that, that bubble up all those emotions, and look once more at the Scripture to see where those helpers are active, where those people are ministering in this moment. And we don't have to look hard to see it all around. It starts with Peter himself, who draws his sword in defense of Jesus to help him from being arrested, cutting off the ear of a slave named Malchus. Very quickly, of course, Jesus instructs Peter to put the sword away. And he does just that. But when he lashed out, he was risking his own freedom. He was risking his own arrest and perhaps even his own crucifixion in doing so. But he wanted to help in that moment. And For better or worse, over the years, Peter's gotten a bit of a rough rep in this moment. Because we know that moments later, he's going to betray the one whom he loves. That he is going to give him over. And yet, I can't help but think in that moment Peter does what he needs to do to ensure that the Savior who he believes in, the Savior who he proclaimed, has the opportunity to live. Because deep down, Peter believes that Jesus can be the Savior and not have to die in the process, not have to suffer along the way. That's who he believes Jesus is, and that's why he seeks to help Jesus in this moment. Indeed, Jesus didn't have to die according to Peter. And according to Pilate, the same is very much true. Now, Pilate, of course, is a fascinating character in this. I would wonder what Pilate would think to know that his name is spoken by Christians each and every time they gather when we recite the creeds. His name forever connected to the atrocities of this innocent man's suffering, of the death of our very Savior of the world, and yet that's who Pilate is. But it's interesting, because Pilate tries to seek justice. He tries to do what is right. He says over and over, I find nothing wrong with this man, until he gets to the point of throwing up his hands and 
handing Jesus over to the crowd that they may execute judgment. And as it turns out, their judgment is even worse than his own. Because Pilate is clear, I find no case against him. And yet, the others do. Then there's the Marys and that beloved unnamed disciple who are there throughout the entirety of this horrific and scary moment who are always nearby Jesus so that Jesus does not die alone, so that Jesus isn't just surrounded by those who jeer at him, but also those who love and care for him deeply, even if some of his own followers have already abandoned him. These women are there to ensure he has that comfort because it is a fearful thing to die alone. And they ensure that doesn't have to happen. What's even more amazing is this idea that after that then, Jesus turns. He turns to that beloved disciple and says, here, care for my mother. And that beloved disciple, we're told, goes and takes Mary into his house that day and cares for her. It takes an extraordinary helper to walk with a mother mourning the loss of her child. And yet, this unnamed disciple, this beloved disciple, does just that. A ministry of which I can think of no greater. But the ministry continues. The helpers continue to step out of the shadows and reveal themselves in these darkest moments. Next, it's Joseph of Arimathea, who himself is very careful not to be associated with Jesus. We're told he's a disciple, but he does so covertly. He does so in the shadows for fear of what association with this criminal might mean for him. And he finds an unlikely partner in Nicodemus. Himself, a character who previously interacted with Jesus in the darkness of the night, in the midst of the shadows, trying to learn what it means for Jesus to be a Savior, seeking answers in the dark. And it's this unlikely duo that step forward to help, to gather in Jesus' body, even if it means associating himself with this now executed criminal, and they spare no expense to ensure he gets the burial, the basic dignities that all people deserve. And he doesn't just take the body, they do it extravagantly. We're told a hundred pounds of mixed myrrh and spices to prepare the body to ensure that it finds a rest that it deserves, even as we know, that rest may only be but a few days long. Oftentimes, oftentimes we get distracted in the world by all of the scary things that happen around us that we lose sight of the helpers that are there all along the way. And the reality is, sometimes helpers have the best of intentions, but the results themselves are mixed. It's certainly the case with many of the individuals whom I have just named. Peter's intentions are great even if his results aren't the best. Pilate's intentions are good even if he doesn't prevent Jesus from dying. I think of it like children offering to help me bake. Their intentions are great, but it's going to mess up everything I make, including the kitchen we're in. 
that's some of the joy of it, is that God invites us to minister. God invites us to be helpers for one another, even though God knows we are imperfect beings. But we also know, and God also knows, that we are made perfect because of the work of the cross itself. We can still do it. We can still try. And that's the true power of the cross. That whenever and wherever things turn scary, wherever there's betrayal or death or suffering, God is there. God is there ministering to us, but also alongside of us. That, you see, is the power of the cross. And this last year, through this pandemic, we have seen plenty of scary moments. But as we step back, what we see is plenty of people, plenty of helpers stepping out of the shadows to ensure that God's presence is known even in this fear-inducing moment. I think about all the healthcare workers working endless hours to ensure the health of others along the way. I think of our essential workers. The word essential itself having been redefined this last year as it's not only first responders, but it's those that work in our grocery stores, those that ensure that we have public transportation functioning, all of those people that put themselves in harm's way to help others when it is needed most. I think about our own congregation and the new things that we've done to help our community, like the establishing of a little food pantry, a simple ministry that continues to be full day in and day out. Or I think about our not-so-new ministries that are being done in new ways and all the helpers required to make it possible. Technology, indeed, the helpers to ensure that we can worship, that we can gather and vote and, and have Bible studies and share in fellowship even if it feels a bit different. It's the helpers that have made those things possible. And the cross, you see, the cross is that moment where we are called to be and to look for helpers in this life and in the life to come. Thanks be to God. Amen.